every night of all teams. Went out and played like swaggering dandies as the Hamlet do. An absolute humdinger from about 25 yards. Get it. Swaggering dandies. An absolute humdinger. Hello and welcome to For the Hamlet. Welcome to this end of decade special um, where we'll take you through our For the Hamlet team of the decade. Um, We actually recorded the main body of this podcast before our dear friend Mishy Marath passed away. And so we didn't really feel comfortable with putting out the episode as it was without a short tribute to Mishy. Um, And so we'd just like to pass on our dearest sympathies to his closest friends and his family. It's been a a difficult period for for many of us, uh, myself and Hugo included, I think, it's such a cliche, but it's only when you lose someone that you realise how much they meant to you. And Mishy was one of the first people at Dulwich that I ever interacted with. He was incredibly friendly, welcoming, uh, despite what people say about Mish and despite what he'd say about himself. He was always, always friendly, always willing to talk. Um, I spent hours over the years pitch side with him talking about football and about life and I sorely miss him and I know that there are uh, hundreds, honestly literally hundreds of other people who who have been feeling the same over the festive period. Uh, He left a mark on a lot of people's lives and I think a lot of them didn't really appreciate the mark that he did leave until the uh, the sad recent events so um, rest in peace Mish um, this one's for you so the last time we recorded was on the eve of the Carlisle FA Cup game at home and we were giddy with excitement and uh, it didn't Completely go to plan, did it? No, it was obviously a bit of a disappointing result in the end. I think anyone who watched that game will will agree that um, the, the scoreline did not tell the whole story. It was not a 4-1 game. I thought we we probably gave as good an account of ourselves this season as any other point. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that it finished 4-1. But Carlisle worthy winners. Good to watch, I thought. Um, what did you make of the evening in the, from the terraces? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh it was just so bizarre to see the uh, car wash car park uh, full of BBC big rigs and various motorhomes and huge rigged lighting. Uh, and we got to the ground at, well, when the turnstiles were opening at five, maybe. And there was already a queue of 50 people um, that we assumed were queuing to get into the ground. But it was actually, actually, it was just BBC production staff queuing to get a hot dog. So we spent a couple of minutes at the end of that queue and then realised what was going on, and then <laughs> and then made our way to the turnstile where there was no one there. Um, 
but yeah, just on the, the BBC press uh, angle, it was also very enjoyable to learn that a lot of the production team listened to the Carlisle episode. Yeah, well, I, I was down at the ground for pretty much all day Thursday, all day Friday, um, setting up scrubbing bird shit off uh, off seats, so journalists <laughs> weren't sitting on that. Um, but yeah, I, I met the sort of head of the production crew from BBC, and, and she'd come down on the train that week from Salford. And it sounded like everyone, as part of their research, had listened to that podcast. So it actually got what we think to be a kind of record number of listens. Um, I think a number of Carlisle fans listened. We had some very nice comments from them. Um, If any of you click subscribe and are now listening to this now, more power to you. Thanks for sticking around. Um, But yeah, it really was quite a surreal evening. As as some of you would have seen or anyone would have seen who was at the game, uh, the BBC brought their own floodlights so I think just even sort of watching it from the stands, it kind of had this cinematic look. I'd never seen Champion Hill look so bright and so powerful. Um, and yeah, all just sort of added to this massive sense of occasion. And I think, yeah, as, as I say, it was it was not a 4-1 game, but it was um, still a really memorable, enjoyable, um, impactful evening. Yeah, and um, Carlo had a player, I can't remember his name. Um, you'll know exactly who I mean when I say he's like the League 2 Jack Grealish. Harry, Harry McKeady, big fan. I'm so glad you remember his name because he was a kind of classic throwback, like Jack Grealish is, of a player who plays in the number 10 role, floats around a bit. He's got a really nice technique and there's a bit of flair about him and he kind of enjoys that side of the game more than any other. Any other. He looks about 16. He wears his socks around his ankles. You can see his shin pads. And um, he really wound up uh, the Dulwich fans at one point because they'd be giving him some jip about I think it was actually about his shin pads or something like about his socks, something like that. And then he scored and celebrated right in front of them. And I personally thought that was quite funny. And then a couple of minutes afterwards, it was another Carlisle counter-attack, which turned out to be our undoing in the game, really. Uh, and he was running forward with the ball. And he, I think he tried, he either tried a step over or another, like, a bit of a fancy turn inside Aaron Barnes. And he screwed it up and basically fell over his own feet. And instead of getting annoyed, he just got up and was laughing to himself. And I, like that, just that little like insight into him as a player just really made me laugh. And I really enjoyed it because I think the game needs more players like that, where he clearly just has fun. And if he fucks up, he finds it funny because it is funny. It's not like he's going to beat himself up about it or he's not angry. He's not an aggro player. And I think that annoyed some of our fans, but I fucking loved him. Yeah, I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I put something out on Twitter after the game that I, I thought I might be the only Dulwich fan who thought he was a bit of a legend. And I, I do think he's a bit of a legend. And I think um, speaking to um, one of our coaches, Mark Dacey, after the game, and he said, you know, he's, he's from Miranda, he's from Croydon. I had him when he was a kid at, uh, at the Bromley Academy. So, you know, he's he's from South London. He's He's been around. I think he had quite a few... Um, a few mates watching watching in the stands who, you know, have knocked about this club as well. So he's he very much like someone who's been given an opportunity to play at a higher level and taking it with both hands. Um, you know, that, that tie will be kind of remembered for his for his goals. And one of our uh, favourite Carlisle players got, got himself an assist on the night, Mo Sagaf, who we spent uh, a large amount of time talking about on, on the last episode due to his incredible career trajectory um, in the continent and in non-league up to Carlisle and uh, when I was sort of pottering about before before you know a lot of people had arrived on um, 
on the night of the game, uh, I just saw this this lad in a full blue tracksuit holding one of those little sort of cosmetic bags that all you know professional footballers bags, seem yeah. to have. Yeah, it's probably a better term for it. But um, yeah, he was he was sort of wandering about, kind of looking like he needed something. And I went over to him and said, "You're right, mate. Like, do you do you need any help?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, sorry, mate. I, I need to put some um, some tickets for for the opposition players uh, behind the gate. Like, do, do you know where I can go?" And I went, "You're my Sagaf, aren't you?" And he was like, uh, "Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, how do you know I am?" And I went, "Oh, I actually do um, do a Dalit Shamlet podcast, and uh, we spent a lot of the last episode talking about you because yeah, you've got you've got an amazing story." And I went, "Yeah, it's uh, it's Hugo." like offered my hand to shake it and he went no 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 it's Mo and I said yes yes mate I know I know who you are but my name's Hugo and uh, let's get you upstairs and let's get those tickets signed off for so uh, so your friends and family of, of the rest of the Carlisle team can get in tonight but uh, yeah we had a little chat I met I met the main man Mo uh, which I never really thought would happen but uh, yeah he was his was a story that I really much I really really enjoyed hearing from you on the last episode and uh, yeah he came off the bench and got himself an assist so Fair play to you, Mo. And uh, I think, yeah, he's still very young. I don't think he's starting every game for Carlisle, um, who've since sacked Stephen Presley, haven't they? A couple of days after they beat yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that result was not enough to save his job. Uh, but, yeah, we'll, I think he's a player we'll be kind of keeping an eye on from afar, along with Harry McKeady. And, um, yeah, I think that's probably, probably all there really is to say on that. Um, do you... Do you see ourselves getting to the first round again in the next few years? Do you think this is going to be something that happens sort of more often? Or I don't see why not. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't see why not. We had to beat a couple of teams in the same division as us to get there in the end. Sure, that's easily doable. Uh, it's just a shame that we haven't put, or we haven't, we haven't given our best performances in cup games generally over the years as we've been going. We had a good run in the trophy a couple of years ago, but apart from that, it's been pretty dire, and it's actually been. It's a bit of an anomaly for a team to do so badly in the FA Cup. So yeah. I don't see. Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah, it's odd. You're right. It's almost been a flip reversal this season, having been such a good team in the leagues for pretty much every year of the past decade up until the season just gone, where we had a pretty mediocre campaign. We're now doing shockingly in the league, but it seems to be at the cost of this incredible cup run, where you know we had a tie on the BBC, and it it's something that. I think every Dulwich fan who was there that night and many more who watched on TV will will remember for a long time. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, you know, they, they know where we are now, the BBC lot. So maybe they'll want to come down again. And also, last last point on that game, uh, I was actually quite impressed with the BBC's coverage and the lack of patronising comments made about either the players or the management and just the general broadcast as well. I thought it was really good. We all watched it. Uh, back on TV the next day um, and yeah I thought the coverage was really good and they didn't make any mention of um, the fact that we were a couple of leagues below Carlisle or if they did they weren't derogatory about it and there was no you know oh, you know, this guy's an electrician in his spare time and stuff like that there was nothing like that it was more just about uh, I think you said at the time it was more just a game of football uh, between two sides relatively evenly matched Um and uh, yeah, it was nice to see that there was the respect there from all the all the people involved in the broadcast, particularly Dan Walker and his interview with Danny Mills and Nairo Clunis. That was that was really good, and also fair play to Danny and and Nye because they came out really well from that. I thought totally, yeah. No, I think um, 
yeah, like the 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 guys gave a great account of themselves on the pitch, and everyone who was called upon to to do interviews with the BBC too just just spoke really well. And I think yeah, it it, it just the club came across so well in every single regard that night. The fans were incredible. That was something that, that, that you know so many people picked up on. Um, the banner that we had behind the goal, "Don't Buy the Sun," that was something that people all over the world picked up on. Stan Collymore was tweeting about that. Um, so yeah, I think from from the players on the pitch, the fans in the stand, all the volunteers and members of staff who were working in the run up to that game and on the night, it was it was a really really special night. Yeah, I think that runs it off nicely. Uh, coming up next, we're going to uh, talk about the uh, successful WHM women's team. An absolute pumping from about 25 yards. Get it. Yes, so um, we've reached a sort of halfway mark in the women's season. They have a sort of Christmas break at the moment. Uh, they're not playing until January. Uh, but as we, as we leave that, I think it was just sort of worth talking about how how much of a breath of fresh air they have been for the club this season and also how well they're they're performing at the moment. Um, at Christmas, they'll be top. Um, they recently beat QPR uh, in the league to to hit top. QPR still have two games in hand, um, but we're two points ahead. So it's sort of all to play for. I think all, all we can keep doing is, is just winning and hoping that QPR come unstuck. But I think... Having been at the QPR game a few weeks ago, um, it was one of the best performances I've seen um, from any side <clears throat> this season. And the the game plan was spot on. We were really, really dangerous. And um, yeah, um, worth mentioning for LOL's Bonner, who got an assist and a goal in that game, uh, finished 2-0. Um, she was just immense that afternoon. And it's sort of becoming that's kind of the norm now with um, with the women's team's performances. We really look quite like a promising side I watched a lot of their games at the start of the season uh, and they were dominating teams and they were clearly a lot better than the opposition they were facing but honestly uh, and if any of the players are listening now they'll probably agree with me that they create between honestly 10 and 20 chances a game sometimes and they wouldn't score any of them and it seemed like they were missing some key players from last season, I think, in terms of attacking players. But it seems to have all swung around now and they're taking their chances uh, a lot better than they were before. Yeah, I think, having heard it from their side, they, they did have two strikers last year, I think scored 20 goals each. So that's 40 goals you're taking out of the team straight away and needing the kind of remaining members of the squad to to step up and, and chip in themselves. And that's exactly what's happened. Um so we, we were at a cup game a few weeks ago against Taringay and they won 11-0. And uh, Anna de Pellegrin, who was playing up front in that game, she scored four. And then I think Sarah Milner scored a ridiculously quick hat-trick. I think she got it in about five minutes, maybe less. I think we reckon it's the quickest hat-trick ever scored at Champion Hill. Um, but I think, you know, neither of these players would class themselves as out-and-out strikers. They're probably more like attacking wingers, number 10s, but they've they filled in and because the team is so creative and because it's it's really well drilled too the the chances come and you know the goals will come too and and they are um we've also beaten fulham twice in the last few weeks we beat them in the league 4-3 and then we beat them in the league cup 3-0 on sunday just gone and i think it's just a massive credit to to the team that 
they're stepping up and they're being these teams that have the backing of men's clubs who are much much bigger than us um, and it's actually quite a sort of interesting insight into the women's football pyramid the fact that we're even in a division with these teams but yeah we're, we're certainly competing with them and outperforming them too which is really really exciting and I think just more widely speaking like the team has been a really like refreshing breath of fresh air for the club the the girls are very very friendly they make a lot of time for the fans who come to watch them and you know they're they're always in there in the clubhouse after games on Sunday to have a chat and uh, I think it's doesn't go unnoticed uh, there was uh, some recent very sad news about the coach Farouk I think you're probably more read up on this than I am yeah so uh, as some of you all know um, the women's team used to be called AFC Phoenix it was a merger over the summer that kind of brought them into Dulwich Hamlet and their coach is a guy called Farouk Manir he had been involved in Phoenix for several years and was a really 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 big part of their identity um he obviously oversaw this transition to becoming Dulwich as manager um for you know the first sort of batch of games as Dulwich but yeah as you mentioned um tragically passed away uh about a month ago and uh yeah the obviously really hard time for the team they've they've rallied rallied around massively put together a, a GoFundMe page which you can find on on their Twitter and online um, to raise money for his, his family um, and it's by the sounds of it Fruk was not just widely regarded by his players but in the women's football community at large like the amount of tributes that we had coming in from opposition teams and opposition players to say you know how much he would be missed was was really just the you know, a sign of how of how well well respected he was, um, and the QPR game was kind of earmarked as a as a tribute day of celebration for Farouk. And I don't think there's any better tribute than the performance that the girls gave that afternoon. Um, they were excellent, and afterwards in the bar there was a memorial service. Um, many sort of glowing tributes and speeches made, some some poems as well, which were really nice. Um, and yeah, I think. Um, he it's really important that we don't forget Farouk in you know this sort of new chapter in the club's history of having a women's team because you know by all accounts he was he was the man who made Phoenix like the club they were and you know was the was the man to sort of help bring it across into, into Dulwich as well so yeah it's a very very sad um news for the club but uh yeah um, there are there are ongoing efforts to sort of help out his family so I think that's really nice from what they've done um, but yeah I, I, I'm looking forward to watching more of the games next year and um, would encourage anyone listening to, to come and join too um, because I think the atmospheres have been really special at Champion Hill this season um, like quite quite contrast to sort of watching the men's team sometimes yeah for sure do you think they can win the league? I think it's doable. I I think the squad is amazing. Um, they seem to like rotate really well at the right times and kind of use the the depth of the squad to to kind of get the best out of everyone involved. Um, I think QPR were unbeaten until 
uh, we beat them a couple of weeks ago. So it's going to be difficult. But who knows? Like maybe QPR end up playing a team who's fighting for relegation and they'll drop points. And all we can do is win all of our remaining games. And, um, you know, if if it doesn't happen this season, I'm sure it will happen sooner or later because it's a really, really good group and um, a credit to the club. Sounds good. Anything else on the women's team? Um, I don't know. Just they're a bunch of legends and more power to them. <laughs> and uh, coming up next, listeners, is uh, what you've all been waiting for. It's the Ford Hamlet, Dulwich Hamlet, team of the decade. An absolute humdinger from about 25 yards. Get it. So I'm I'm very excited to uh, to go through this team with you. Uh, we kind of have not been noticing in the past sort of month or so that a lot of publications, um, other clubs have kind of been doing these teams of the decade, and it's it sort of fits in quite well, I think, because Gavin Rose has been manager for ten years. We've been coming since 2013, so the best part of the decade, and really chatting to kind of a mix of fans and people who've been coming longer than us, it sounds like we didn't miss too much in those three years in terms of players who are really kind of of the level that we're talking here. Some of those players were, who make the 11, were actually there before 2013. But, you know, as much as we are kind of your archetypal nouveau Dulwich Hamlet fan, I think we're in a fairly good position to be able to say that we're happy with this team. Um... And should we take it away? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I think it's a pretty obvious first choice for the goalkeeper, isn't it? I think so. Um, we've gone with Phil Wilson. Um, I think Phil, you know, is a, ma- a massive sort of face of Dulwich Hamlet for quite a number of years. Um, really kind of not only made the position his own, but also kind of involved himself in the fans, in the kind of wider running of the club in a way that not not everyone has done. And yeah, I think he's just, you know, quite a special character for, for everyone who's been coming to watch Dulwich for a while. Um, he's been on this podcast. Uh, what are your memories of that evening? It wasn't that long after we started recording together, I don't think. Yeah. And Phil had all, always been... A figure of interest to both of us, I think, mainly because of his career prior to Dulwich and just the kind of genial guy that he was around the club anyway. And so I thought, I always thought that, and I'm, I know you did as well, that he would always kind of be our one of our first targets to do a proper like deep dive on his career uh, and record it. And we asked him, and of course he said yes. Uh, and it was around. It was around the beginning of the year in 2014, I think, or 2015. 2015, maybe, yeah. And um, and it was, I, I remember it because I think it might have actually been towards the end of January and his Christmas tree was still up, which, <laughs> and the reason we know this is because he invited us round to record after he'd finished, had he finished a parents' evening? I think it was evening? a parents' evening, wasn't it? incredibly stressful day at work and yet he's inviting two guys who he doesn't really know apart from talking to them drunkenly in the bar uh he's invited us around uh for 
dinner, which turned out to be a couple of bags of crisps, which was uh, gratefully received, to be honest. It's all I really needed. Um, so, yeah, his Christmas tree's up. We're there, sat with him in his kitchen. Um, there's photos of him, you know, all around, and it's just all a bit surreal. And he yeah. just sat there and was quite happy to give us a couple of hours of his time to answer you know, a huge range of questions from, you know, I don't know whether he prefers tea and coffee, tea or coffee, to what was it like training at you know, Oxford United? So yeah, it it was a uh, it was a really memorable evening, I think, and it was kind of um, Phil Wilson in a nutshell, really, not just uh, an iconic player for Dulwich Hamlet, but an iconic player for the fans off the pitch as well. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And Phil's been around like back at the club at various points since he's left and he's always someone who's just welcome with open arms at the club and I think it means just as much to him too um, he was at the Carlisle game like I think we both had a bit of a chin wag with him after after the game um, yeah and just uh, always someone who's who I've got a lot of time for really and he was um, he was at the forefront of that group of players in that particular uh, I suppose era of Dulwich Hamlet where it, they were all so accessible still and the level at which you know the club was playing at it was a bit more rough around the edges it was all a bit more DIY all the players were a bit more um, open to to interacting with the fans in, on an informal level you know in the bar after the game they'd all have a pint that was at the point where football was an add-on really and they actually had you know yeah um quite significant full-time jobs and so it was a release for them as well so they were players for Dulwich Hamlet but a lot of them including Phil were also your mates 100% yeah and I think he probably sort of recognized that it was never really going to get any better than that like he'd had he's had his opportunity in his football career to like play at a higher level than than where we were at then but he sort of recognised that he was at a stage in his career where, like, he was part of something really special and the best thing to do was just to embrace it, and he absolutely did. That's such a good point, because instead of thinking, I don't know, if you, if, if he was 21 and he was trying to get, scout, get scouted, for, I don't know, he might have played a game and then thought, right, I'm going to go straight home, I'm going to have a nice bath, and I'm going to recover. Tomorrow I'm doing a big training session in the morning, whatever. But because he was at the stage of the career that he was at, and because the kind of guy he was, he thought, fuck that, I'm going to stay here and have a couple of pints. Yeah. And maybe, definitely that contributed to his relationship with the fans. It's a really good point. Um, I think just before we move on, I think it's probably worth touching a little bit on what he was like on the pitch, because we mostly talked about what he's like in the bar, which is fucking brilliant. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, I think he, he was a great keeper. He had a real presence. Um I can remember two games in which he saved penalties. You may be able to think of more, but the first of the Dulwich game I went to, which was in August 2013, so the first game back in this, me and Prem, he saved a penalty. And so I thought that was pretty brilliant that, you know, we had a, a penalty saving keeper. And then at Maidstone away, I think probably would have been this season that we interviewed him around 2014-15. He saved a penalty at Maidstone it was obviously in the opposite end because we were behind the goal. Yeah, I think I remember that. And I think we went on to win the game 1-0 and Maidstone still eventually got promoted. Yeah. But that that game and that saved inspired the T-shirt of Michael Shores <laughs> that said, 
Keeper Libra legend because <laughs> him and Michael were both Libras. They share a star sign. They share yeah. a star sign. And Michael had been so taken by this penalty save, as we all were, that he'd got Phil Wilson's face on a t-shirt with that slogan. Then, that summer, in pre-season... <laughs> was it Beckenham? Well, I think it was Whiteley because I think it was your birthday. Oh, yeah, it was. We were on a train to, to Whiteley. From Lewisham, I think. Yeah, and... We just saw this like little group of youths having a little laugh at us, which is not an uncommon thing, let's be perfectly honest. But they were like, they eventually like came over and like sort of sniggered to us. Um, excuse me, do you mind if I take a picture? Because uh, you've got a photo of our PE teacher on your t-shirt. <laughs> and it turned out it was some of Phil Wilson's pupils who were on the same train as us. They'd seen Michael's t-shirt and it just started pissing themselves because he was a man in tracky bottoms. <laughs> Uh, just just wearing this this t-shirt with a big photo of their teacher's face on it. Um, so yeah, I think that was uh, that just sort of says a lot, I guess, about how how much of a man of the people Phil really was, and uh, really kind of inspired fans, and I'm sure has inspired a number of of kids who've come through his classes as well through the years. Yeah, and as you say, uh, I, yeah, I would like, like also like to just say that he was class on the pitch. Uh, he was a real. You know, keeper Libra legend. He was also a keeper leader legend. Uh, there are a lot of young players coming through the club at the at the time, particularly in defence. Actually, we'll get onto them. Uh, but yeah, he was. I would like to think hugely important in the development of those players, playing behind them, um, coaching them through a game, uh, organising them. Um, so yeah, he played a huge role um, in the development of players on the pitch um, and off the pitch as well. I'm sure. So. Yeah, Phil Wilson is deserved number one goalkeeper for uh, our team of the decade. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how did, for those who don't know, how did his song go? Don't you wish your keeper was Phil Wilson? Don't you wish your keeper was Phil Wilson? Don't ya? <laughs> like the Pussycat Dolls for that. Um, so moving on. Uh, defence we should probably say at this point uh, we've gone for a a 3-5-2 formation so there's three centre backs the first of which uh, who should we start with Um, I think maybe the one in the middle of those three yeah so should we before we reveal who it is maybe just talk about him a bit without naming him yeah if you like like to kick off uh an imperious character and centre-back. Um, I agree with that. A pivotal figure in the kind of early half of this decade. Um, and a man who took those leadership skills into management and now seems to sort of be flourishing. And I always like to think of him as a... You know, they talk about Rio Ferdinand as being a Rolls-Royce of a defender. <laughs> and they kind of glide across the pitch and there's almost like a regal aura around them as they play maybe because it's because they find the game not easy but the way they play the game seems to be comfortable comfortable to them they're technically strong um, and they can pass the ball they enjoy the game they're not just a a battering bruising centre back but there's there's just a bit of class Uh, and there were moments when um, this player would honestly uh, tackle one striker, move forward with the ball and nutmeg the next. 
Uh, I saw that more than once. I saw him carry the ball 40 yards at one point, a la Sol Campbell, <laughs> France 98. Um, he was a real joy to watch because he had that kind of technique that meant that he could easily glide past players despite being six foot three. Um, and as I said, the game just looked easy to him. Yeah, we you just compared him to arguably the two best English centre-backs in the last 20 years, so quite the introduction. <laughs> um, it's Peter Denyu. It is Peter Denyu. Um, I think, yeah, th- for me, a very like a player that really kind of stood out in the first season of mine watching Dulwich. Um, yeah, someone someone who played the game with a, in a really sort of tenacious way. Um I've got to say, my, my memories of his actual defending are hazy because we were always at the other end of the pitch to where he was. But one memory, which I think kind of alludes to what you're getting into, is him kind of bombing up the pitch, continuing his run, and just smacking a volley from sort of just inside the box yeah, into the I wrong remember. corner. Yeah. I think there is a clip of it somewhere. Yeah, I remember it. But, like, it, it, it was just one of those goals. Like, Tony Adams scored one in... Um, 98 against Everton at Highbury to to seal the, the, oh, the yeah. title for Arsenal that year. And you do just get these centre-backs who are just much better with the ball at their feet. Like when John O'Shea chipped Armenia. Well, <laughs> I reckon I could chip Armenia. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he, a great player and a great leader and, yeah, 100% a big, a big chapter. You've given him the armband, I see. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He was... Um... Towards the end of his time with us as well, he, again, along with Phil, they became such father figures for those players coming through. Um, and he he kind of, him and Phil and a couple of other players around that time kind of walked around the club as if, you know, it was not as if it was theirs. That's the wrong, that's the wrong way of putting it. But there was just a, a confidence that they had. And, you know, they'd been at the club for that amount of time and they were that integral to how the team worked that, he was just an imperious figure uh, on and off the pitch. You know, in terms of defending, you're right. We were down the other end of the pitch a lot of the time. But from what I remember, as I said, he just made the game look easy. You know, strikers would struggle to get past him. He was quick across the ground. If he was chasing down a ball over the top, he'd get there first, deal with it, you know, lay it back to Phil or play a pass. He, he never seemed panicked. He never missed a touch. He was strong in the air. Um, he from memory he could use both feet. Uh, he was just a, a real joy to watch in defence. And uh... yeah, it's interesting you talking about kind of him and Phil's role, like <clears throat> in the dressing room, as it were. Because I think at that time we had some really promising young players coming through, like Vidal, Shaney Samuels, well even Nyren at that time. And these guys are sort of the bridge between them and the management team. Um, you know, slightly older, still players, but you know they've been around a little bit longer. And I, I guess it was sort of that kind of line of cohesion that meant it was such a formidable group that mm. you know did really well in that era and kind of made the first big stride to where the club is now. Yeah. So, yeah, a real, a real legend, I would say. And um, a little word on what he's up to now. He's gone on to amazing things with um, Cashelton Athletic yeah. uh, in the league below, in the Isthmian Premier League. Um, they made the playoff semi-final last season, which I think was their 
first season at that level in some time. Um, you went to that game, didn't you? Yeah, yeah we went to the semi-final at Kishalton. Um They lost against Merston. Uh, so it was a real kind of Dulwich loving because I'm sure some of you know that um, up until recently, Merston has kind of been, honestly, 80% ex-Dulwich Hamlet players. Sometimes their lineup was... I think that their lineup that night was eight ex-Dulwich players in the starting lineup. Um, so that was a kind of Dulwich versus Dulwich evening. Unfortunately, Kashalton lost, but it was an incredible achievement for them to get that far. And Pete was at the heart of it. Pete either plays centre-back or centre-midfield for them. And I think he's 37 or 38 now. Um, and he was class in that game. Uh, they're doing well again this season. Um, I think they're fourth or fifth as we approach Christmas. Um, and they've been without Harry Ottaway, who is an ex-Hamlet uh, striker. And they've been without him all season. He's kind of their main target man. So they're doing well again. And <laughs> just a uh, very quick segue. Harry Ottaway hasn't been playing. So instead, they've been playing... Oma Karoma, who is also <laughs> ex-Dulwich. Uh, so Pete is uh, continuing the Dulwich tradition down in uh, South London. Um, but yeah, he's going on to great things, it looks, in management, and uh, I can't say I'm surprised. Um, there's two other centre-backs. Uh, who shall we start with? Let's start with the centre-back who's just gone on loan to Chelmsford City, which is a <laughs> bit of a... Uh, an interesting move after he moved to Wrexham in the summer. Uh, it's Michael Chambers. Yeah. Um, slightly interesting one, given what you've just mentioned. Um, but I think the reason why he's in there is because I think this formation makes sense and we probably probably needed someone to fill this third centre-back role. This is a glowing review. Yeah, no, I know. Tr- I was thinking before I said this, like, I really want this to sound nice, but I've just given him a massive backhanded... Backhand? It's not even a compliment, is it? No. Um, we could have played Cargo centre-back, actually. Oh, shit. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, no. Michael Chambers, obviously a very talented player. I think quite, quite similar attributes to... To a Denny, in a in a sense that he, he you know he's good with the ball of his feet, like quite quite ambitious often, like a very much a Gavin Rose player, technically good, and for a while kind of there seems to be no reason why he shouldn't have had another shot at going up leagues, which is why you know Wrexham taking him on kind of seemed like a good thing, and we sort of all hoped that it'd be a springboard to moving on even further but it doesn't seem to have quite worked out that way James is a weird one because um, I suggested we put him in there pretty much purely based on his final season with us um, where he had a run of games and when I say a run I mean honestly 20-25 games in a row where he looked like he was unbeatable um, playing in the centre of defence. He, he he got to that point where um, a few players we've seen over the years get to at, at the level that they've been playing at where it just becomes too easy and they don't even break sweat. Um, and he got to that point in that final season with us. And so 
that is why I don't think we can have this team without him because the level he was playing at in that final season, he absolutely is one of the players of the decade based on that. Um, you know, he, he won everything in the air. You couldn't beat him on the deck. Uh, he was playing 60, 70-yard passes out of defence. He just looked supremely confident. However, there were moments that season, despite this form, where he thought, for fucking hell, I, for, I, don't know if you're, I don't know if you're ready for the level above. There was, there was an own goal at one point where he, it was awful. He made a few other massive mistakes that led to goals. Um and so it was always an interesting move to Wrexham and I think surprised a lot of fans that he went that high. And it's only the league above, but I think a lot of us thought that maybe it would be the same league, but maybe a more established team in the league. But I thought, you know, an ex-league side, Wrexham are probably going to be going for promotion. Honestly, that did surprise me because... I thought his. I don't think he'd be able to iron out those mistakes quickly enough. Um, I think that's a part of his game. So I'm not. I'm not wholly surprised that he's dropped down back to our level on loan. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Interesting when you put it like that. It, funnily enough, he was on trial at Carlisle in the summer, and <clears throat> there's some quite amusing photos of him taking part in a training session that took place on the beach that uh, Stephen Presley is leading, and seems to involve a lot of running up dunes and playing with beach balls but um, that obviously never amounted to anything and uh, I think you kind of making the point that he doesn't quite look ready now is interesting because having seen Carlisle come to Champion Hill seeing what their centre-backs look like and what like finely tuned physical specimens they are not to say that Chambers isn't a physically dominant player as well but just the the two centre backs they had at Champion Hill that night were just huge, like brutes of men. And I don't know, I just don't think Chambers is quite he's a bit better than that. And I don't think that's necessarily what you need to be a league centre back. I'm not sure. I'm kind of saying slightly contradictory things there perhaps, but I think he's fully justified to be in this team on on the way you just explained it. So I think We'll leave it at that, shall we? An absolute humdinger from about 25 yards. Get it! So, so far, Phil Wilson goal, Peter Denny and uh, Michael Chambers, two centre-backs. And the third centre-back is really, in my eyes, the jewel in the crown of Gavin Rose and Junior Caddy's time at Dulwich. Um... When you consider players who've come through the Aspire Academy and flourished in the Dulwich Hamlet first team and have gone on to better things and then even better things and continue progressing and have consistently referenced back to their time at Dulwich as being key in their development as a football player. Um, this player now is honestly probably one of the best centre-backs outside of the Premier League. Um, he is now starting games for a team in the Championship who are, will push, push for promotion. Um, 
at each club that he's moved to since he left Dulwich, he has excelled. And I remember when he got his first move, um, within, honestly, within two months, I think he was being looked at by teams in the league above because he's adapted so well to that level. Um, and the sky could be the limit. I mean, if he if he gets a run of games playing in the championship um, from now onwards to the rest of the season, who knows where he might end up next season yeah. uh, if he keeps progressing at the rate that he is. Um, and it is. It's Ethan Pinnock. And I'm actually sort of welling up a little bit hearing you talk about him in those terms because I fully agree. And I think I could probably record a whole podcast just espousing his virtues because he's absolutely class. And I think memories of Ethan's time at Dulwich were just initially of a, of a incredible talent that we perhaps didn't quite know how to utilise initially. He sometimes played in midfield, he sometimes played in centre-back and looked a little bit lost. But he just had such a good footballing brain that it was never really going to be a challenge for him for too long. And once he established himself, he was such an important player for us. And I think... It's a perfect illustration of spending just the right amount of time at Dulwich. He maybe could have left like a season prior to when he eventually did, but he stayed on. And I think that has stood him in such good stead. He he had a habit of hitting these diagonal balls over the top. You kind of coined a bit of a, a kind of Ford Hamlet meme out of it almost. Um that he'd be hitting these diags from centre back over the top, but uh, yeah, he he he's just a brilliant, brilliant player. And seeing where he is now, and I totally agree with you that he could kick on and play even higher. Is is just makes you so proud to be a Dulwich fan and to have witnessed him play for Dulwich too. Because yeah, totally for me, like my favourite player in this team. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting that. He's very similar to to P- Peter Denny and Michael Chambers in that comfortable on the ball, technically very sound, great vision, uh, a great understanding and appreciation of the game. Um, you mentioned the diagonal balls. It was when Danny Waldron joined the club and I interviewed him for the podcast. And I, I asked Danny about what he thought of the quality of the team. And I think it might be one of the first things he said. He said... You've got ETH hitting 70-yard diags for fun. And I, I just, you know, that was the summer in between when he'd had a run of games similar to how I explained um, Michael Chambers earlier, where maybe the second half of one season, he had 20 games in a row where you thought, this is a player now. This is a, this is the player who has outgrown this league and who now sees everything almost like matrix speed. You know, he sees everything in slow motion. It's that easy for him. But then that summer he stayed. And then the next season, I, it was just, it was almost unfair, like watching him defend because, you know, I say Michael Chambers didn't break a sweat. I don't think even Pinnock broke a sweat once in those 46 games that season. I honestly don't think he did. He was, he was playing at a level which... I hadn't seen um, and the game was just so easy to him um, and he ended up making a really educated uh, well thought out move and joined Forest Green 
which I think was a perfect move for him because it, at that point it was a step three levels up, but it, it wasn't the football league. Um, they were playing in the in the conference. Um, it was the perfect step up for him, and that was the place where you know almost immediately he adapted to that, and um, he started getting rave reviews. He was called up to the England C team, um, and he's just kicked on from there. You know, as I'm sure some of you know, listeners, that after that um, move to Forest Green, he then joined Barnsley in League One. Um, went up with them, played in the championship with them, um, was playing in the first team, it wasn't first choice, but then when they dropped back down to League One, he really cemented his place as the first choice centre-back in, in that Barnsley team that was going for promotion again. Um, and, you know, even even seeing on, on Twitter that he was getting Man of the Match awards playing for Barnsley in League One, it, it made you feel so proud and it was it was a a real validation of what we all saw in that final season and huge credit to Gavin Rose and Junior Caddy for nurturing him into a player which could then kick on in such an incredible way. Yeah, definitely. Like they used to call him the Barnsley Maldini um, when he when he was at the club. And yeah, any, anyone who's watched the Sunderland Till I Die documentary would have seen him scoring for Barnsley at the Stadium of Light. And it's all these little moments. Like every time you'd hear about it and see him getting in the, the, the you know League One team of the week, League One team of the season. That when that move to Brentford eventually materialised, it just it wasn't a surprise at all, was it? And I think Brentford have always been quite a sort of progressive club in in recent times. Like um, a lot of good players come through their doors, and they actually kind of use some of the most sort of advanced metrics in the transfer market to like scout the players that they want for their team now you know you'd have to be a blind man to not recognise what a good talent Ethan Pinnock is but clearly they've identified something there who is capable of helping them push on as you say they're going for promotion again he's playing in the centre back with Pontus Janssen who signed from Leeds in the summer Swedish international and you, you know I see they beat Luton 7-0 the other week they've just been in Fulham on the weekend and seeing Ethan be involved in all this is just it kind of warms the cockles isn't it I think he'll play in the Premier League I do as well I do as well and I think of someone like John Stones who's picked up from Barnsley for Everton and then you know goes on to become starting centre back for City and, and for England as well like these things do happen and yeah I think whether whether it's with Brentford or not you know, clubs in the Premier League take punts on players who are far more of a gamble than Ethan Pinnock. So, yeah, I think, I think I would back that. Uh, one last final bit on uh, Ethan before we move on. Uh, I've just remembered. I've just pictured in my mind vividly an iconic photo of uh, four Dulwich players all in arms celebrating a goal wearing Margate's away strip, their bright orange away strip, um, because Dulwich had turned up and the referee wasn't happy with our away strip. So we were playing Margate away. I think it was January or February. It was about four degrees. Ourselves and Margate were going for promotion that season. Uh, The referee asked that we wear Margate's away kit. Uh, We won the game 2-1 and Ethan scored a header 
from a fr- from a free kick in the second half, towering header, glanced it into the bottom corner, and uh, yeah, it's just an iconic photo, an iconic goal, um, and a moment that I'll always I'll always remember. Same, absolutely. It's one of my favourite Dutch games, and yeah, brilliant that he he scored in it, and just hilarious that we did it in their orange kit as well. I've always thought so. Yeah, very nice memory. <laughs> So three centre-backs, Ethan Pinnock, Peter Denny and Michael Chambers. Uh, we've gone with a couple of wing-backs yep. part of the old 3-5-2. Um, let's start with the left-sided wing-back, uh, who um, I've honestly never seen uh, a left-back be so good going forward, but not necessarily that good going backwards. Yeah, that, that is a, sometimes labelled of these players. Uh, but going forward, this guy uh, was like a non-league Gareth Bale. Uh, the way he yeah, was like yeah. a juggernaut. And once he got up to speed, you couldn't stop him. He was getting into the box or he was getting into a position to cross the ball. Uh, There's nothing you could do about it. Um, just the athleticism of the guy, the the will of the guy to win games, to to just to win challenges uh, he became an integral part of the side that was promoted up into the Conference South a couple of seasons ago um, he's a huge loss I miss him I really miss him he was a huge presence on the pitch I've got memories of him playing at um, Tooting and Mitchum's ground while we were ground sharing there um, of just bulldozing players uh and being a huge threat on the left-hand side. He was basically like playing a left winger, left wing back. He was that good going forward. Yeah. Um, it's Nathan Green, if you haven't already guessed. Um, and I think this is why in R11, that's the perfect position for him. Because like you say, formidable going forward. A, you know, phenomenal talent. Really, really effective. And something we're probably missing in the current team now. Um, but... Yeah, um, I th- I think yeah. Not only did he help us get to the conference south, he helped us stay up. And I've actually got a game we lost actually away at Torquay to far far better side than we were that day. But Nathan Green had picked up a dislocated shoulder, and we'd used all our subs. He played on. We think we were five nil down, and. Nathan was just like, right, I'm not having this. And he played on, holding his arm against his chest. But he, I think he picked up the ball and scored a banger, like kind of from the edge of the box. And then I think maybe helped win a penalty that's got us a second. So we kind of won the second half. But yeah, it was just like, it's one of those games where, yeah, he just sort of really kind of came to life. But he was capable of doing that in any scenario, really. Um He's a local lad as well. I was um, speaking to a friend of the pod, Charlie Carter, earlier today. And um, he said that Nathan was a couple of years above him at Haberdasher Asks over in, in Broccoli. So, you know, very much one of our own. And um, yeah, it says a lot, the fact that he would probably still get in the team now. But, you know, he's, he's missed and um, a good bloke to boot. Yeah, we've been quite blessed uh, down the years with left backs. We had... Ahmed Dean. Yep. I remember him being a really solid left back, really good going forward. Um, we have Fraser Shaw, who was capped for England C during his time with us, who went on to play for Leighton Orient. Um, really handy player. Yeah. And so, but honestly, n- none of them compared to Nathan Green. There's a memory I have of him 
was it actually against two team when I can't remember who it was against, but he beat two or three players at the K and K and slammed it into the bottom corner. Um, and it was one of those goals where you knew that after he beat the first man, he was going to beat the next man. And then you knew as soon as he got, got into the box, he was going to finish it as well. He had a hell of a, a shot on him. But always used to keep the ball really low and hit it really cleanly. Um, yeah, he was he was a huge threat for us. And uh, yeah, he's been a real miss. Uh, it was it was almost like he was setting up to really attack teams down that left-hand side um, with Nathan Green in the team, just because you could. Um, we'd create space for him down the left wing, uh, which he'd often utilise to great effect. So yeah, deserved place in the team. 100%, yeah. Um, over on the right uh, is a man who we have, I suppose, really playing out of position, but, you know, much like uh, Sven Goran Eriksson, you have to, sometimes you have to play players out of position just to get them on the pitch, right? Um, we're not playing Paul Soles left mid, it's not that bad. Um, we're not playing Nick Barnby anywhere, it's not that <laughs> bad. Um, but we've got a, a, an, an actual club legend, um, a player who's played over 400 games for the club, scored over 200 goals, I think. It's over 100. Over 100 goals, sorry. Um, a player who, at whatever level he's played at with the club, has always been a huge threat, um, has never looked out of his depth, um, has scored goals, has assisted goals, has played in four or five different positions, always given his all. He's been a real ambassador for the club. We mentioned earlier that um, he represented the club uh, gracefully and um, beautifully on BBC coverage uh, earlier this year. Um, it is, of course, the King of Camberwell, the Prince of Peckham. It's Nairon Clunas. Um, just on where he's from, uh, I noticed recently... On the border? Well, in uh, Jack Pitbrook, who's now at the Athletic, did into with Gavin Rose um, for the Athletic to preview the, um, the Carlisle game, and in this interview with Gavin, um, it kind of picks out Naren Clunas as someone who's you know been around the club for a while. Gavin says this line like, "Oh yeah, he's um, he's from uh, on the cusp of Camberwell and Beckham," and I just thought it was brilliant because like you know we've always kind of heralded him as as. The, the King of Camberwell but I think he's really from, from North Peckham um, so you know nice of Gav to sort of acknowledge that there is this legacy behind him but he's really from the cusp but um, we've put him on the cusp of the wing in a kind of slightly dodgy right wing back position where he has been known to actually fill in from time to time he's really kind of out and out winger um, but you know he's got bags of tricks pace um, very very effective player on his day um, but just in terms of sort of like role more widely at the club I think you're definitely right that he's kind of really grown into his own as someone that represents Dulwich for this whole decade he was there right from the beginning of this decade when he made his debut um, he's, I think he even made his debut a few games before Gavin came in as manager so actually precedes Gavin Rose which is phenomenal and it's an extraordinary achievement for any player to have played that many games for the same club, to have remained there, to have remained relevant. And I think just sort of seeing him speak a number of times a season to the media, um, he he's was sort of on 
on stage with with Gavin and Rio when they've launched this joint charity partnership that they're doing this year with the Rio Ferdinand Foundation, um, which you'll probably be hearing more about uh, next year. But um, you know, he he speaks so well of someone who came through the academy, earned a place in the first team, and kept working hard, and also kind of recognizes the sort of importance of like keeping up those skills off the pitch in the classroom that sometimes get pushed to one side a little bit in football, especially when um, kids are, you know, kind of early learning stage. Um, so, yeah, just just a great guy and a really great ambassador for Dulwich Hamlet. Yeah, what I've loved is that um, he's he's been such a constant in our relationship with Dulwich Hamlet. You know, he's been there from the very start. Um, he's been there when we've had heartache at the end of the season and you can see how distraught he is if we've lost a playoff final if we've not made the playoffs and then he's been there the first preseason game we've gone to in the bright sunshine and it's it's almost like it's almost comforting to see him there around the club in the team um he to me um he is Dulwich Hamlet um you know along with Gavin Caddy he symbolises the club he you know Dulwich Hamlet isn't Dulwich Hamlet to me without Nairon Clunas um, and there's been there's been various points down the years where it's been suggested that he might move away um, that clubs might try and sign him I know he's had a few trials uh, clubs in leagues above I know he was he spent a week or so at Norwich and there might have been something with Charlton in there at some point um, but every season that he's played for us he has improved and he's developed his game and sometimes there are a few question marks over whether you know the next promotion would mean that he was out of his depth and every time those doubters have been proven wrong and he settled in and scored goals and remained a huge threat and a huge part of Dulwich's attacking game definitely yeah um I was add to that that I think it speaks volumes that in the season that we won promotion to the Conference South, Nyron won fans player, players player and managers player of the season. Um, you know, the hat trick. Um, he was incredible that season. Uh, one of my favourite ever Dulwich photos, it's a, it's a Duncan Palmer one, is that away game at Billericay that we've referenced a lot on this podcast over the years or since it happened. And we went there and won on the eve of the day that we were kicked out of the ground and had our name threatened that you know we were going to lose our, lose our club identity. We went there and we beat Billericay, and Nyron scored and he came over and in front of the, the away fans he just pulled up the Black Panther symbol and like that is just I don't know it's one of those goosebump inducing moments and. You're right, the Nyron has been there for the absolute highs. He was there on promotion roundabout wearing his shirt from the game. Um, stopping cars in the road. Stopping cars in the road, having the time of his life. And he's been there for, you know, the, the rubbish points when, you know, we've lost playoff semi-finals and playoff finals and, you know, lost away to Tooting in the cup. And, you know, all these moments, he's he's been there. And I think you're absolutely right that he... He symbolises this decade more than anyone. Yeah, and there's, I've just got a couple of iconic images in my head. I think they're both the work of um, the former club photographer Duncan Palmer, 
one of them was I think the early days of Dunk's um, photographing of the club away at Bognor and it was after a move that involved I think it was Reese Morrell Williamson Nairn was involved I can't remember who else but you know those counter-attack goals where everything happens so fast that the, the move happens and before you know it the ball's in the back of the net and then all the players who've been involved are already sprinting because it's a counter-attack so they all just kind of sprint off together and go and celebrate and there was a goal exactly like that at Bognor and Bognor are massive rivals anyway and it was a huge game and I think Reese broke I think Reese broke down the right and drilled in a low ball um, on a counter-attack and Nairn ran onto it at the back post and slammed it home and there's an amazing photo that Dunk has got in line with the goalposts of Reese running past celebrating sprinting on one side of the goal and then Nairn's already on the other side of the goal with his, with his number number 14 on his back also doing the same celebration they're all sprinting off like wheeling away together and it was just such an iconic shot and and really encapsulated Nairn as a player um, fleet-footed, full of joy, um, and in front of fans going absolutely crazy for him, which is you know a, a shot which has happened so many times down the years of Nairon and and fans celebrating. And another one, the second one was he scored a goal at the K and K when we were ground sharing with Tooting, and it's I think a lot of you will know as soon as I say it, the Christ the Redeemer shot. Yeah. When I can't remember who's hugging him, but he he's Quaid's one of them. The Quaid, his arms are outstretched, and he's got his eyes shut and his his face is tilted towards the sky, um, and you know that's that's not just an iconic shot in non-league football. That's an iconic shot in football. I mean, I still go back and look at that and think, what an amazing photo that is. Definitely, yeah. And brighter days were to come because we we came home and. Like I can't think of who that would have meant more for than than the Noren Clunas because, you know, he's the king of Champion Hill. He has been for this decade, and do you still find it phenomenal that a player can score hundred goals and never score a hat trick? But, you know, that's nigh. Yeah. Maybe we'll never see one. But yeah, what what a player? Noren Clunas, right wing back. An absolute humdinger from about twenty-five yards. Get it. Moving into midfield, uh, maybe a slight spoiler alert earlier. Um, this is a player who, in our side, is playing in front of the centre backs. Um, he's an anchor. He's a guard. Uh, he's played over a hundred games in the Eredivisie for Villanueva. He's played for Sierra Leone over thirty times. He's played a drum on promotion roundabout. <laughs> He's had an interesting relationship with FIFA, <laughs> to put it lightly, like yeah. many people have. Yeah. Um, that is the organisational body rather than the game. Yeah. Uh, he once got sent off for two yellow cards, both in the first half of a game against Feyenoord, and both for fouls on Yondal Thomason. So... Don't say we don't do our research. <laughs> uh, I pulled that right from the back there. Uh, it is, of course... Ibrahim Kogbo. Ibi. Ibi. Um, yeah, we've got him as defensive midfielder. Um, and this guy sort of proved to be a really kind of inspired signing. Um, quite an unlikely signing, given his pedigree. But, uh, you know, slightly exceptional circumstances meant that he... 
couldn't play in the Netherlands anymore. <laughs> couldn't necessarily play at a level of spotlight which he might have been under in the Netherlands. Yeah. After some interesting activities in his leisure time. <laughs> um, but this was, as a couple of these players we've mentioned before, when he played for Dulwich, he played at a level that was just so easy to him and he would coast through games. We've mentioned players not breaking sweat. He, I don't think he broke a sweat once in the entire time he played for us. Um, a player of that calibre and of that, of that pedigree, you shouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, he, he would be, as I said, the pivot. He'd be um, a, a guard of the centre-backs. He would get the ball off the centre-backs and play passes. He'd screen the defence. He was just everywhere. He loved to tackle. Um, he'd get forward and score goals. He was just an all-action, all-round, complete centre midfielder for us. Yeah, as and you know, we sort of talked about Niren's role in that promotion season and Nathan Green's as well. I think Cogbo was really the sort of first name on the team sheet, wasn't he? Like someone who's so important for the team, just really kind of mopped up and made sure that that team ticked over and worked. Um, what were your memories of him from the season before that when we did so well in the FA Trophy? Because that was the, the year I was away for entirely. But I think that was a sort of breakthrough season for the club. Yeah, well, that was when um, you were coming up against sides who were playing in leagues above us. Um, and it would just be the same to him. You know, he'd be coming up against footballers who maybe in the past, you know, year or two had been playing regularly in League One and League Two, now playing for Macclesfield. And honestly, they'd be in his pocket. Um, he was still playing at that level and what was impressive is that he'd play on a Saturday against players who were playing in, in the Esme and Prem but he wouldn't let his level drop so it would come to those games in the trophy and he'd be playing at exactly the same level that he was in those other games against lesser opposition and that's when you knew that you had a real gem on your hands and you know you were privileged to have this player in your team because then you could compare him against players who were playing a couple of leagues above and he was still better than them. And so, you know, a player of, you know, he was 35, 36, he still had it. He, he could have easily played two or three leagues above us, I've no doubt. Um, I've seen clips of him playing for Vellum Tway, and he was, like, he was the same for us. He was an all-action midfielder. Um, you know, at his peak, real quality centre midfielder. You don't, you don't get 33 caps for Sierra Leone and, and not be absolute quality. Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, just one of those players who, you know, we were quite lucky to have for a little while, and yeah, definitely made his mark, very lasting mark. Um, so yeah, bit of a no-brainer that selection, I think. And then we've got two attacking midfielders sitting in front of Ibi. Yeah, I think this works well for the lineup. Um, should we start with the one who was at the club first? I kind of feel like we should do the other one because I want to, I don't know, because I just feel like he shouldn't go first. I don't, right. know, I don't know why. I feel, like he should, I feel like he should be the full stop on the centre fielders. Okay. So do, I, th- I, do think, it that way, then. I, I think we should go for the other one. This is a player who played the game with a smile on his face and the type of player who 
would look at a situation and you'd easily be able to play, I don't know, a 10-yard pass to your left back. Or you could slot in a little cross turn and then hit a 40-yard through ball to your right winger, uh, which I saw him do many times. I've never seen a player put his foot on the ball and drag it back so often as this player to varying, varying levels of success, it must be said. Yeah, yeah, that was probably his trademark move in some way, wasn't it? Yeah. I, honestly, I don't know if I've watched a more infuriating player in a double shirt <laughs> at times, but then I've also never watched a more exciting player Maybe aside from the player who's playing alongside in attacking midfield, who we'll get onto, um, so many moments of, oh my God, did you just see that? So many moments of just laughing because it was so good. So many moments of laughing because it was so unnecessary. And so many free kicks. So many... So many penalties. So many penalties. So many videos of goals that went viral, semi-viral, that you'd watch again and again. So many goals that we've cut into (laughs) montages because they're so good. Um, A player who infuriated Gavin Caddy. A player who I've never heard be screamed at so often from the side of the pitch. Who needed coaching from the first to the last minute because he was always out of position, because he always played the wrong pass in their eyes, because he could always do something more quickly, because he never got back quick enough, because he was one of the worst tacklers I've ever seen in my life playing in that position. But you forgave him all of it for moments like the goal against Worthing, the goal against Macclesfield, all the skills. Goal against Bogner. Uh, all of the skills I've mentioned it is of course Ash Carew the one and only yeah I think he's a player we've talked about on this podcast before well many times but in particular when he when he left the club has just sort of been the definitive Dulwich Hamlet player for, for us two because he came in you know relatively soon after we started coming and just made it fun made coming to Dulwich an enjoyable experience from what we were capable of on the pitch and yeah, I think you you calling it by saying he's a player who played with a smile on his face. He's a player who played with a smile on his face, but he, he put smiles on other people's faces too, just from what he was capable of doing. And um, yeah, I I get misty eyed thinking about what Ash could do with the football at Champion Hill. That was his that was his playground, wasn't it? Um, he loved doing it. He loved scoring there. Um, there are some players you've got the <clears throat> technique when they're striking the ball of um, like Frank Frank Lampard had it and I guess you know other centre midfielders that you think about down the years like Steven Gerrard had it um, Rick Elmay had it thinking of real top level players here to compare them to obviously not in terms of actual skill but in terms of the kind of the way they played the game and, and striking the ball he'd, he'd he managed to hit, like the I don't know, from halfway up the net to the roof of the net. He that area, that that half of the goal, was just an area which he'd more often than not find. Like it might not go in, but he'd test the goalkeeper; it would fly just wide. Left foot 
right foot. I remember him scoring a left foot 25-yard goal at Staines at one point, which almost defied physics. And he, you know, he'd score half volleys, he'd score volleys, he'd hit it off his laces. He was just a joy to watch. So, like we said, so many free kicks, but all different kinds of free kicks. The one against Bogner, he whipped around the wall into the bottom left-hand corner. <laughs> the one against Worthing was almost like Dimitri Payet's at Old Trafford the other season where he, he whipped it top corner and it dipped at the last minute. There were more that went in off the bar. Um, penalties, he just... He was ruthless. Yeah, absolute. I don't. I don't honestly remember see him. I remember seeing him miss one. I'm yeah. sure he probably did, but it was just if you made a montage of them, it would just be back of the net, back of the net, back of the net. Um, yeah, it, it, so many memories. Along with you know, we've talked about Nyron. You, you know, with defenders, you remember how well they played the game. You don't remember specific moments in games. With attacking players, with Nyron. With Ash Carew, you remember the goals they scored. They're the memories you remember. And so many of my memories of Dulwich over the last six, seven years have been Nairon Clunas. They've been Ash Carew, the free kicks, the yeah. goals, the moments. You know, he he will always hold a special place in my heart because he will always remind me of this period of my life. And he, he was just such a joy to watch. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think we kind of dug out some figures not too long ago just about how many games and goals he scored um, which would probably be worth revisiting but yeah he was a real sort of when he was in the team he was in the team and he was playing like 40-50 games a season because that's how many we had Yeah, and yeah just a phenomenal talent there was one season where I think he hit 25 goals Yeah, and I think at least 10 of them were free kicks yeah 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 I mean, there was a point where you'd get a free kick within 30 yards of goal and the likelihood was it was going in. Yeah, yeah. It's It was an amazing feeling to be so confident that, you know, we were going to be at the very least testing the keeper, like, from that sort of range. I miss seeing goals from range, to be honest. I don't know if there's another player um, in our squad, actually, that would divide opinion so much. Because uh, I remember, even even as he left the club, you know, some people were quite happy. Some people never got it. Yeah. Um, they never understood the value of him. They didn't really understand why people raved about him. I think it's, you know, you mentioned the frustration of seeing him play sometimes. And I think sometimes, maybe for some fans, the kind of seeing a player who works hard and is industrious and, you know, doesn't give the ball away but is solid, you know, that's a bit more relatable and kind of someone who fights for that badge a bit more is what they want. But I think in terms of entertainment value, charisma, like, just general sort of enjoyment, for me, Ash was kind of untouchable during those years. Glad we're in agreement on him. Yeah. Slotting in in front of Ibby Cargbo, Ashley Carew. Um, and then next to him, and you might, well, you probably don't wonder who it is actually, uh, but after we've waxed so lyrical about one attacking midfielder, and we, I personally wanted to mention this guy after, as, as, a, as I said, as a full stop to this area of the team. Um, this is a player that 
I guess apart from Ethan Pinnock hasn't has hit the highest height since he left the club and honestly I think in terms of natural talent he's the best player I've ever seen at Dulwich Hamlet um, I agree he's one of the best players I've ever watched live at any level of football in terms of technical ability and if you think about a player getting you off your seat because you can't believe what you've just seen him do and if you really appreciate the game of football and appreciate how manipulation of the ball can create chances in football and can create space and how a player who is not necessarily physically gifted at all can still thrive in such a physical game I can't think of another player that I've seen live and maybe even you know on TV that I appreciate as much as this guy he was just you know we talk about moments you remember down the years he, there would be moments where you just end up laughing because you couldn't believe what you were watching uh, you know he'd score goals and you you'd celebrate but also at the same time you'd be laughing because you couldn't believe it was happening um, so many moments where you didn't really understand what he'd just done so many moments where he'd be 25 yards from goal and you'd, even before he's hit it you knew it was in so many goals where you know you'd want to have DHFC TV we didn't have it when he was at the club because you'd want to watch them again and again and again you know I mean goal of the month every month at, at this point you know at yeah. some points while he was at the club he was scoring hat-tricks he was scoring braces I think he scored was it like 70 something goals in two seasons from centre midfield it was ridiculous uh, not to mention the assists on top of that yeah and just the sort of general vibe he was giving which is yeah. like constantly attacking constantly threatening constantly playing like ridiculous passes yeah like. and this is a guy who's playing an incredibly physical level of football in the Isthmian Prem um, and he was five foot two he was five, he was, he, he'd get the ball and he it was it's no exaggeration to say that when he was dribbling around players he'd be dribbling around there and also almost running under their armpit yeah that, that was like that was the, the scale of him against his markers in centre midfield he'd be running underneath them almost yeah well I mean you must know we're talking about one now it's, it's Erhanus Tuma um, I've got one one memory of the only season I saw him play which was the 13-14 season in the Isthmian Prem and I think it was nil-nil maybe I want to say, say it was against one of the Thurrock teams but that could be completely wrong but in any case I've been behind the goal and it was just getting to half time I was with my mate James and we said alright doesn't matter we're going to score this half let's head to the bar we started trickling round we were at the Greendale end and we were running around just reached just kind of before the, the main stand where, where, you know, where the toilets are we were on the attack and we were kind of in line with you know kind of about the 25 yard mark maybe slightly further and we stopped we stopped and we turned and Ostuma picked up the ball and he turned and he just sort of chipped it from the edge of the box lobbing the keeper and we were right in line with it and we obviously turned to each other and celebrate and James just went oh I'm sorry mate I bet you, bet you wish you were behind the goal to see that and I was like well yeah obviously I'd like to be celebrating with everyone else but I've just seen this goal from this fucking ridiculous angle from all this way out like I'll, I'll never I'll never be able to see that again like it 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 was just unbelievable. And he did that again and again and again. And, you know, you talk about Ethan always kind of 
remembering his roots um, of of his early years at the club and his education. I think Erm was a bit further along in his football education. I'm not sure, and I'm sure Gavin will be the first to admit this, I'm not sure how much Gavin was able to improve a player with that much natural ability other than just to say, you know, go out and do your thing, work hard, you know, respect the, your, your environment and where you've come from. He, he was already too far along in that, but he is a player who's always, you know, remembered his time in non-league and that he's really become the template for these guys who've been at, you know, Premier League or Football League academies and have come back down to play non-league because they've seen what it's able to do. He's a template for players who've been at these academies and told that physically they will never make it as a professional footballer. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, like, the nickname the Turkish Messi might seem a bit flippant at times and a bit lazy, but it's actually spot on in the sense that Messi is a player who's never had the, you know, physical attributes that some of the players in La Liga do have. Some of the players who played in La Liga and have kind of rivaled him for the amount of goals scored. But in terms of that kind of like get out for your seat factor, that I think what you know what we love about football and, and like as you know, two people who've played the game a bit ourselves over the years, like you love kind of seeing things that you would want to try and recreate or want to be involved in. But I think when you see a player like Ostuma, he the way the way he did things with the football, it was just the way that you could never even conceive doing. Like his relationship with a ball, to be able to control it, to stop it, to play it exactly where he wanted, to even have the idea that when you're picking up thirty yards that you're gonna put it right over the goalie and just turn around and be like, yeah, that's, you know, I'm taking that in my stride. That's what, that's why you go to football, to see things that are just impossible, <laughs> that no one else is capable of doing. Totally unique player. Yeah, you know, there was the lob at Hemel Hempstead. Um, that is on TV. <laughs> yeah, I think that's on some sort of BT YouTube channel if you want to try and find that. Um, when he lobbed the keeper from the edge of the box. There's a 30-yard pile driver against these Thurrock at Champion Hill. There's a 20-yard finish away at Harrow Borough. There's another one at Enfield. There's a free kick at Enfield. It was just... It was just unreal to watch a player of that talent use use every single game that he played as basically a playground. It was, it was like he was playing a different game. Every single pass that he waited, every through ball was perfect. Every decision he made made sense. He he was playing on a level where the players playing on the same team around him, they weren't playing, they weren't playing his game, and he would get frustrated because he would see something that they wouldn't, and so a move would break down. And there were there were so many times where, you know, he'd be in a tight, sticky situation, and he'd go for a one-two or something, and then the ball wouldn't come back, or he'd want a player to have made a run and they haven't made a run. He'd play passes that no one even saw. Um, yeah, it was just such an amazing experience to watch a player. of, And it was like, you know, you try not to mention his height too much, but you, you kind of have to because it was like watching a child play in centre mid amongst giants and he would run the game. Like He wouldn't just, you know, kind of affect the game. It would the whole game would go through him. All of our players would look for him. You know that whole centre midfield area was just Erhan Ostuma, and you know you were just playing with him basically. 
And you're right that Gav probably just said to him, go out and enjoy yourself because, and I think Gav has actually said in interviews, um, it might have even been with Jack Pitbrook actually again over the last couple of years when they, they talked to Gav about the Aspire Academy or about how they develop players. And I think Gav actually said, you know, for the years that we had Erhun, there wasn't really a strategy. The strategy was you put out a team, which means that Erhun can play football. Yeah. It was, it was just Erhun and nine other outfield players that meant that he could play his game. And, you know, there's no better compliment than that. And watching him live, you could see why. Yeah, totally. Yeah, when you have a player of that, of that calibre, you, you play through him, play with him at the forefront. Um, so yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal talent. Now ended up at uh, Charlton. Yep, not playing, too far from from home. Playing semi regularly in the championship. Yeah, back where it all started for him. Yeah, funnily enough, we all we all thought when he was with us that you know his level was probably championship, and you know hopefully he'll get some more game time after Christmas. Unfortunately, again, thinking about his stature and about the way he plays the game, when a team is struggling, he's often the first one off the team sheet, which I think is kind of happening again with Charlton. It's a real shame. As soon as the team that he's playing in struggles, he's often the one that's sacrificed. Um, so hopefully Charlton will pick up after Christmas, and, and so will he. Um, so yeah, Erhun Oztum alongside Ash Carew is a, not a bad attacking midfield yeah. duo. Yeah. Um, we've got two strikers up front as part of the 3-5-2. Uh, which one do you want to start with? Um, I think we'll start with the one who's playing on the left you've put him on. Um an integral figure in the promotion season from the Isthmian Prem. Um, from Division 1 South. Oh, I was actually talking about... my left or... I was talking about... Or that left. I was talking about the left of the formation. Go for it. Um, yeah. Um, scored an awful lot of goals. Um, and again, like someone who was at a club in the higher echelons of the football pyramid um, a palace was released and wanted to have a second chance somewhere and obviously he chose Dulwich got a terrible injury didn't he yeah. knee injury yeah um, so it's Reese Alassane doorbell's just gone by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah Reese. uh Again, like quite a few players in this lineup, when they play for Dulwich, were playing at a level far higher than the league that they were operating in. Yeah. Um, I don't remember a player playing for Dulwich who scored goals at a rate that Reese did for three or four months in that season we got promoted. Really, I think he dragged... We kind of struggled at the beginning of that season, but then from... And he came in in maybe late September or October. And I reckon he probably scored about 75% of our goals from when he came in to, say, mid-January. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was like one one Saturday there was a brace, then there was a hat-trick, then there was a brace, brace, hat-trick. It was at that rate that he was scoring. Yeah. Do you remember when I was back for a week in London for my birthday and we had met police away? It's the first time I'd seen Reese ever play, but... He scored a hat trick in the first half that afternoon, and I was just like bloody hell! Like, you know, of you know, I hadn't seen the team play in like a year and a half, but this was a guy that we seemed to be able to focus everything around, and it just seemed like, you know, 
what could go wrong on the pitch when he was available. Brilliant, brilliant player, just a deadly finisher, great movement. Um, and yeah, in, an instrumental part of that promotion winning side. He was properly ruthless. Uh, you know, within 25 yards of the goal, he always had a knack of hitting his shots cleanly and into the corners and low. Um, which meant that he scored a lot of goals in that period. There was game. There were games in that season. Um, you're always going to get where you're not performing very well. You're away at a side who are struggling in the league, but you're not performing well. The pitch is shit. It's a really physical battle, and it's only going to take one moment of class to win the game. And we were playing away at Thurrock, and he got the ball about thirty yards from goal. And as he would do quite regularly burst past two or three players and get to the edge of the box and he did that and he took a shot and it was a proper daisy cutter into the bottom corner um, and that, that was a real kind of Reese trademark in the end um, getting the ball on the half turn um, running towards the box and getting a shot off I remember so many of his goals being like that um, and yeah a real ruthless finisher and a player who instantly worked so hard um, I remember in his first couple of games when he was clearly absolutely knackered because he hadn't played he hadn't played football properly for probably about a year um, and he put himself about so much and by the end of the game he could barely walk um, but you could see he was just desperate to get back out there and start playing again um, and again just thinking about iconic photos um, Duncan Palmer again got a really iconic one of Reese. Um, getting is it two or three goals at home to Kingstonian? Uh, it's an evening game, I think, maybe on a Tuesday night, and he's running, he's running towards the Tommy Jover stand, and he's making a kind of numbers sign. Yeah, with his fingers. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might be a hat trick, and he's yeah. kind of got three fingers up like sideways. <laughs> he's running off doing that towards the stand, and everyone's celebrating. Um, that's an iconic shot, um, and that was, you know, that was that was a regular occurrence in Reese's time um, with us. Yeah. Um, I think he got injured at that Billericke game that I mentioned earlier. Um, he was got some sort of like back or neck injury and it was because of that, that there ended up being about 20 minutes of added time in that game, which was ridiculous. But I kind of felt like he never quite looked the same player when he came back from that particular injury. Certainly not for us. Um, and... He had a you know a brilliant couple of months, like well three or four months I guess preceding that, it, like of a run in the team where as you say he scored a hell of a lot of goals, put us in the driving seat to to win promotion that season that we eventually did through the playoffs, but yeah, I'm not sure he ever quite hit that patch of form, and it's a shame because it seems to have sort of blighted him ever since moving up to commentary, failing to sort of establish himself there. He turned up back on loan at us earlier this season and did score. Showed exactly the same kind of brightness that he always had done, but then got injured again in training. And yeah, just a slight shame really for him that he has not been able to build on that brilliant goal-scoring season he had with us. Um, and I really hope there is some more good good times for him to come in his career because... Um, yeah, seems seems deserved. Yeah, it's a real shame. It's been real highs and lows, hasn't it? Because he went to Coventry and then Mark Robbins, the manager, ended up deciding he didn't really fancy him, um, um, you know, for one reason or another. And then he spent some time on loan at Woking 
um, in our first season in the Conference South and I know he scored a few goals including a real um, goal of the season contender against Welling I think yeah um, and it, you know, it looked like he was really kicking on again and then yeah he came to us and, and I mean really sadly got another horrendous I think knee injury uh, similar to when he got at Palace um, so I think he's out for the season and you know it, you know, when you're not sure if a player's going to come back from another injury as um, as bad as that, so hopefully he does because um, he's a huge talent um, and he fully deserves a place in our team of the decade. Um, despite, I suppose, really the relatively short spell that he had. Yeah, yeah, um, precisely. And uh, the final player in our starting lineup, playing alongside Reese, is a player who. Um, really fired the team to promotion from Division 1 South um, again a player released from uh, an academy uh, in leagues above um, who was looking to kickstart his career again and who who managed to do that who had a hugely successful time with the club and then and then moved on up the leagues afterwards um, a player who you know I say that Reese scored at a rate but in the second half of the 2012-2013 season I think this player scored 20 goals after Christmas Yeah, uh, and he was 19 uh, the first time he'd ever played uh, senior football um, you know outside of an academy situation um, which is a huge achievement um, shows you know shows you've got real balls and you really want to fight for your career and you've got huge talent as well um, he, he, he will always be quite iconic to me, for a few photos I've seen of him in the uh, the old Dulwich home shirt that was a kind of checkerboard, um, or like a it was like divided into four when you had like um, a kind of a dark blue, and then in between you had a kind of light pink. It wasn't as vivid as the colours are now, and it had heart estate agents across the front of it, and he had these like three or four inch long dreads that were kind of all over the place. Um, and you know, for his age, he he looked he looked a lot older than he was, and he played a lot older than he was as well. Real target man, um, and also enjoyably a left-footed striker. And there's always something about left-footed strikers, just like there's always something about left-footed midfielders, where technically they seem to be really sound and they play the game slightly differently. Um, and it is. It's Danny Carr. Um, I must admit, he's a player I barely saw play for Dulwich because even in his second spell, I think, was while I was away. But, you know, uh, a player who came with a massive kind of, um, what's the word? Massive reputation, just sort of from what he'd already done at the club, as you as you mentioned, with being that top goal scorer in the promotion season. Um, you uh, you interviewed him for the podcast, didn't you? Um, what, what do you remember of that? I think you did it over the phone. <laughs> yeah, this was 2014, 2015. Um, I phoned Danny up. Uh, I can't remember where he was playing. Maybe... Was he possibly at York? He would have been at Huddersfield on loan somewhere, I, th- I think. I think he was still at Huddersfield. I think, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe he was either on loan at York or Macclesfield. Okay. Or Man- Mansfield. Mansfield, yeah. I think he that, was on loan at Mansfield. That right. Um, I phoned him up. He was a really, really uh, sweet kid, really nice guy, um, and 
was very uh, open with me and had nothing but good things to say about his time at Dulwich. Um, he spent a week on trial at Liverpool, I yeah. think. Wasn't that while he was still at Dulwich? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think that was when... I cut. There's a player that he always mentioned who he played alongside. I can't remember. Oh, for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. But yeah, he spent a week on trial at Liverpool. Um, so this would have been yeah 2013-14. So for those of you who might have more knowledge of the Liverpool squad at that point, you'll be able to figure out who he played with in that week. Um, but yeah, he had nothing but good things to say about his time at Dulwich. Um, you know, you've, you're going to have amazing memories as a 19-year-old joining a club scoring 20 goals after Christmas, helping them win promotion, um, helping them win the league. Uh, it must have been an incredible experience. You know, there's photos from that day in 2013 of, you know, the, the pitch invasion and him being carried aloft. Uh, Jack McEnroy, yeah, senior, yeah. Um, who's the uh, the father of um, Jack McEnroy Jr., who's, you know, who founded For the Hamlet with you all those years ago. Um, a brilliant photo of, of Jack uh, McEnroy Senior carrying Danny um, and I think you know Danny's got his boots off and he's carrying them and it's an incredible scene um, and Danny was part of that side you know that Peter Denny captained um, Phil Wilson was keeper Chewy Gonzalez was playing um, yeah you know uh, Ian Daly it was a team of um, of established players and experienced players and but he was the real focal point of that second half of the season and that must have been an amazing experience for him. Um, and he, he now, brilliantly, uh, plays for Apollon Limassol in Cyprus because, as you mentioned, he came back to Dulwich a couple of seasons ago. It didn't quite work out. Um, and then he left and he went and played in the fourth tier in Sweden. I don't think that really worked out. Um uh, and then he, out of nowhere, he joined um, Shamrock Rovers. Uh, did relatively well with them. I think got into double figures for them a couple of seasons ago. Um, maybe even last season, sorry. They got into the Europa League qualifying rounds. And then last summer, they got through to one of the final qualifying rounds against Apollon. And I think he scored in one of the legs. Unfortunately, they went out on away goals, but a couple of weeks after, he joined Apollon. That's brilliant. Um, so he's now playing in, in Cyprus. Um, I've been keeping an eye on things. that He's not starting games. He's actually got uh, a player who I've kept tabs on over the years cause, um, for various reasons called Serge uh, Gakpe, who's an African striker who's played you know, 150 games in Ligue 1 in France. So he's ahead of him at the moment in the in the uh, attack for Apollon so he's not getting much game time but fair enough yeah yeah it'd be interesting to see where he goes next um, but yeah a, re- a real talent Danny Carr and um, deserves a place in our side as I said for spearheading the attack for that promotion season um, and bagging so many goals um, so yeah I think that rounds off the, the starting lineup. Um, yeah should we rattle off the bench I'm slightly conscious of our Length, the length of this one. <laughs> yeah. An absolute humdinger from about 25 yards. Get it. Substitutes. Preston Edwards. Uh, iconic goalkeeper for the club. Um, Very popular in this household. 
Yes, indeed. No Preston, no party. Um, famous for leaving his car blocking uh, an emergency exit at the K&K a couple of years ago. I think that went viral on Twitter. Yeah, when we were playing Palace. Uh, also famous for, unfortunately, uh, guttingly for him, missing the playoff final um, through injury when we got promoted. But... Um, yeah, a brilliant keeper for us, capable of incredible saves, a real leader on the pitch as well, who's now taking his hand to coaching, um, but is still also playing games for the club as well. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, yeah, he's he's unlucky in that Phil Wilson yeah. is, is is such a club legend. 100%, Otherwise yeah. he'd have been yeah. straight in there. Yeah, um, yeah big up Preston Edwards. Um, Ellis Green, um, namesake of Nathan Green, um, a flying winger who was really prominent in the in the promotion season along with Danny Carr in 2012-2013 big player in 13-14 um, him and Nyren in the same team was a real um, you know, challenge for opposition defenders to deal with it's when we played with a huge amount of pace to attack down the wings and you know, the first thought from Erhan back then was get the ball out wide to, to Nyren or to, to Ellis um, famous for the, uh, the really uh, exquisite Terrace song of number one is Ellis Green, number two is Ellis Green, number three is Ellis Green, etc. We all dream of a team of uh, Ellis Green. Um, so yeah, uh, pace on the bench with Ellis. Um, next up is Kevin James. Yeah, an absolute club legend. Um, again, big player in that promotion season and then a couple of seasons afterwards. Um, just a real kind of Lieutenant on the pitch for for Cads and and Gav, I think is probably the best way you can describe him. Yeah, um, a real centre midfield battler. Yeah, who also played up front as a at some points as a false nine, which was quite funny. Um, but yeah, a leader on the pitch. I've never seen someone moan so much. I've never seen someone be so angry. Uh, but you need those players, and Kevin James was a, a pivotal um, player in in Dulwich's first team for a number of years in the, in the years that we first started coming so deserves a place on the bench um, Dean Lodge yeah where to start at, at a festival probably would be the best place to find at him at Creamfields or on a rocking horse yeah both both like scenarios or as security for a Radiohead gig that I went to a few years ago which I think is the last time I ever saw Dean Lodge um, but in terms of what we can actually do on the pitch um, a rapid player um, could really hit like full speed quite quickly instantly yeah like from naught to 100 miles an hour in yeah. two or three strides yeah yeah and having that at the level we were at, at the time Mr. and Prem was, was quite an effective means to success like a bullet yeah um, and just just a player who it was a shame really to never see quite reach his potential with us I think yeah um at one point, I'm pretty sure in the 13-14 season, he he won a penalty three or four games in a row just from that pace and the acceleration that he had in the opposition box. It's a huge threat for the, for Dulwich. You know, with him, Ellis Green and Nyron, you know, we were known for the wing, for yeah. really threatening and pacey wing play. And I think just someone we've always been quite fond of for clearly kind of embracing um, the party lifestyle. He became quite mythical in the end. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you ever spot him out and about in South London, it was a real moment. Yeah, which did happen, but, you know. Regularly. Yeah. Um, next up is, some people might question this due to his very short time at the club to this point, but it's Danny Mills. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of put that out 
in there out of sentiment to a degree. I think um, you both, well, you'll know how fond of Danny we have been for a while and the fact that he's now at the club has been really good and nice and we really enjoyed having him on the podcast um, a couple of months ago. But um, yeah, I think just kind of hard to choose another striker. I think perhaps Dippo is a little bit unlucky to miss out there given that he scored quite a few goals, quite a few important goals um, during a fairly long succession of stints at the club. Um, Fair point. So I would perhaps think about changing that. It's not to say Danny can't cement his place in this team um, either, but yeah, I don't know. Slightly contentious that one. Perhaps if you're listening and have a fairer way of deciding or a more justifiable reason for it then let us know I think when I suggested Danny I was doing it more based on natural talent and just the fact that he he to me is maybe since maybe even since Danny Carr he's he's Danny Carr's first in he's the first number nine who leads the line and you can just rely on for being that striker who's going to be a focal point of the attack Harry Ottaway was a similar player but didn't really sustain it for long enough to be considered on a level and I I just yeah I agree Dippo should probably be in there but based on pure talent and the role in which he plays and how well he plays it I I think Danny Mills kind of deserves it yeah we could probably do a whole episode about the strikers we've had at Dulwich and the success stories and not so success stories but um, perhaps we better move on Next is Joe Benjamin. <laughs> it's Quade Taylor. Yeah. Um, an interesting one too. I think we kind of weighed up whether we should have him in defence instead of Chambers. Yeah. Um, just because they've both been at the club a similar amount of time, like have relatively similar attributes. And I think we just thought Chambers was a slightly more finished article. And I say that as someone who's very fond of Quaid, both on and off the pitch. Um, but he's in there. He, yeah, he's uh, really developed as well, I think, since he's come back to the club. Uh, he moved on up the leagues after he came through the academy. He's dropped back down, and to begin with, he looked a bit shell-shocked to be back playing at the level we were playing at, and it was mm-hmm. a bit of a um, an adjustment period for him, but he's become quite a valued member of the squads, and due to longevity and... And just the fact that he has played in four, five, six different positions and and always gives his all and yeah. deserves a place. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say as well, this season, arguably the most important game so far has been that having away game that got us the Carlisle tie. Quaid was phenomenal that day. He won everything and, you know, really kind of made sure that we won that game and saw it out and that enabled us to have the Carlisle game. So, yeah, cheers, mate. Big up, Quaid. Um, the final player of the squad um, is a real mercurial talent enigmatic enigmatic is probably a better way of putting it who unfortunately I think at the moment is taking a break from the game um, which is a real shame given his talent his age and and the memories he provided us with over several years of watching Dulwich um, we've mentioned quite a few times already with other players, you know, long-range goals, and you know, players who enjoy the game and are technically very sound. And you know, for a period, there was no before Ash Carew, 
there was no player playing at the level we were playing at who was scoring goals from outside the box more regularly than Javier Vidal. Yeah, um, yeah, real a real talent, and I totally agree that it's a shame that um, he's in a situation now where he's no longer playing. But um, certainly when he was at the club, like he again, he precedes our time. He he scored the goal that took Dulwich up. Um, which was a 25-yard yeah. strike into the bottom corner, which was very Zavidar. Yeah. Um, and then that first season back in Eastman Prem, he, uh, you know, he really made his mark. He showed that he was capable of playing above that. He was more than capable of rising to that new challenge at, at a very young and early stage in his career. Um, I remember interviewing Gab, actually, I think it's on an old episode of, of this that you can you can dig out. Um when Jav had just gone on loan to Birmingham City, um, you know, on trial. on trial, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, um, and he, you know, like Gav had kind of expected him to be going and training with the first team there. I think he only ended up training with their twenty threes or something, but you know that kind of shows you how highly he was thought of. That you know, Gav fully kind of expected him to be going and training with their first team. He ended up going to Welling for a bit, didn't he? We having a bit of a stint in the conference, and then. Unfortunately, I think it was kind of a slight kind of downward. Yeah, he went to Welling, who were playing in the conference at the time. And I remember him scoring two 25-yard thunderbolts away at Gateshead. Yeah, I was going to say. I remember watching that. Quite a memorable stadium for it to happen. Yeah, I remember watching it on the conference highlights at at some point. And um, two very similar goals to goals that he was scoring at Dulwich. Um, and unfortunately, it just didn't work out. And he, uh, yeah, I think he dropped down, dropped down again. At one point, he was playing for Greenwich Borough. And then I think maybe he might have been playing for Thamesmead. This is maybe a year and a half ago. And I think at the moment now, he's injured and he's not playing at all. Um, so, yeah, it's a real shame. Uh, a player who provided many a great memory for us um, and was supremely talented. So, yeah, fully deserves a place in the squad. Um, so, we've got... Phil Wilson in goal, centre-back trio of Ethan Pinnock, Peter Denny, Michael Chambers. You've got Nairon Clunas right wing-back. You've got Nathan Green left wing-back. You've got Ibi Cargo sitting. And then you've got Ash Carew and Erhan advanced in behind Danny Carr and Reese Alassani. I'm very happy with that. Um, I enjoyed going through that a lot. And I think um, it's not... It's not Clear cut eleven. I'm more than happy to hear other suggestions, but I'm very happy with the team that we've put together there, and I'm I'm glad that we kind of were able to come to such a clear consensus on it because I think all of those players kind of mean quite a lot to us, but for different reasons. Like they all kind of provided something in their own right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, yeah, looking at the team, that team would undoubtedly hold its own in the conference I would have thought um, maybe even a league higher um, it's also quite sad that a few of them have kind of enjoyed not enjoyed endured uh, slightly uh, sad periods in their careers just looking at Jean Vidal Reese. but mm. their time at Dulwich was uh, undoubtedly happy time for them uh, yeah unbelievable squad I really enjoyed that Um should we do it again in 10 years? Jesus. <laughs> I'm into it. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, 
Thank you for humouring us. I wonder if our squad matches up with yours. Let us know if it doesn't. We're all ears. Uh, if you want to have Joe Benjamin in there, if Ryan Moss is your number nine, uh, let us know. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we think we've got that pretty accurate. Um, is there anything else you want to round off the decade with, Hugo? Um, I think it's it's just worth taking a moment to kind of absorb some of those memories and I think we both agreed that we kind of wanted to do a podcast of reflection and nostalgia and reminiscing because what the men's team have been doing out there on the pitch in recent games has been very unenjoyable but football is a game of ups and downs isn't it and for every shit performance and unenjoyable Saturday there are plenty of good ones and I think you know take a bit of confidence and positivity into the new year and there might be some good times again around the corner it's funny you say that because i watched the new episode of copper 90s excellent documentary series uh derby days they've recently just done one on the berlin derby which is seen by some fans as a tin pot derby because it doesn't really exist because there's no real rivalry to me that doesn't really matter what matters is you want with these Derby Days episodes, you start to get a real understanding of the club and Ellie Menjem's piece on Union Berlin really made me think about what's been going on on the pitch with Dulwich this season. And he speaks to a Union Berlin fan and he says, we couldn't give a fuck about titles. We couldn't give a fuck about winning championships. We don't give a fuck about winning cups. He said, all we care about is that this is a place where all of these fans can come together and build memories together. He was like, I don't give a fuck if we lose 3-0. I give a fuck if I have an amazing time with my friends and I'm in a, an environment where I'm happy and we have fun. And it's a place where people of, you know, like-minded people come together and congregate. And that made me think that recently I've been getting so down and disappointed with what's been going on on the pitch at Dulwich. Just because I've been focusing solely on the outcome of the games, of how little points we're picking up, how many games we're losing, whatever. And actually, really, when we're talking about all the happy memories we've had, what we've really been doing is creating memories and congregating together in a place where we all have fun together and we are building friendships and relationships together. And I'm going forward, I'm gonna try and take what this guy was saying in Berlin and try and always relate everything back to that in the who cares? Like, who cares if we win? Who cares if we lose? Obviously, it's going to affect our mood a bit, but really look at the bigger picture and look at what we've all been creating over the last six or seven years. And that's what I'm going to do going forward because, as you say, on the pitch, it hasn't been great, but off the pitch, we're creating memories which will last a lifetime. Totally. I could not agree with more with that. And um, I, I share that attitude for the new year. And I hope maybe a few other people will too. Well, there we go. Um, have a very enjoyable end to 2019, everyone. Have fun on New Year's Eve, uh, whether you're watching Jules Holland or going to Fonox. Who knows? Maybe a bit of both. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a real uh, pleasure to record this pod, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we'll be back again in the new year at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah, see you in 2020. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, listeners. Goodbye and good night. Be nice if all teams went out and played like swaggering dandies as the Hamlet do.
An absolute humdinger from about 25 yards. Get in. Swaggering dandies. An absolute humdinger. Swaggering dandies.